Today's episode is sponsored by Wine52. So he was basically, um, he had his inner circle of slaves. I believe there were seven. Um, it feels like a lifetime ago, so I'm starting to forget some details. <laughs> um, and they were all to recruit their own six slaves. And he was having sex with all of them, basically, I think. I keep trying to think of a way to start my introductions to podcast episodes without using the word today. Um, It's quite tempting. Every time I'm about to sort of think about what I'm going to say, it's always like, today on the show, today I speak with. And I've come to the conclusion that it's a pretty meaningless word in that sense, because, you know, my today, as in right now, is very different to the today that you're listening in. So it's pretty redundant. Um, and I've managed to get away. I've just started without with the today bit. Um, and, you know, today I've, I've finally done it. I'm very proud of myself. I've started this podcast without saying today, but we're 40 seconds in and none the wiser as to what the podcast is about. So I think maybe uh, I'll go back to using today from next week. Um, and this extremely varied introduction is for a very worthy guest who was once a member of the notorious NXIVM cult. Now, for those of you who, like me, don't or didn't know much about this sect, you're in for a bit of a shock, not least in how that bunch of capital letters are actually supposed to be pronounced, because it's definitely not how I just did it. But I'll let Kelly do that later. The cult was, on the surface, a multi-level marketing group that had various levels of membership, as multi-level marketing groups tend to have. Its members were supposed to be learning, and they did learn, a lot of sort of self-help stuff, uh, a lot of stuff about purpose and how to find happiness and be a, a better person. Its methods were said to have been somewhere between those of Tony Robbins and the cult of Scientology. And there was even some stuff about going back to your childhood and past lives. I think I read something about that somewhere. That, of course, is enough to set alarm bells ringing in many of our minds, particularly as we've discussed cults so many times on this show. Uh, But NXIVM, not how it's pronounced, remember, went much further than just the multi-level marketing and all that stuff, with charges of racketeering and sex trafficking. Its founder, Keith Raniera, was recently sentenced to 120 years in prison after he was found to have started a sex cult within the cult. A cult within a cult. It was called DOS, and once inside, women were branded like actually with a fire thing, with his initials, and coerced into sex with him. I wanted to talk to Kelly, who fortunately didn't go so far into the cult, but did become a coach within it, to find out how seemingly normal and smart people can be brainwashed like that, and what the appeal of this horrible man called Keith was. Well-versed now in the arts of brainwashing and cults, Kelly doesn't disappoint and helps us to understand the psychology behind it. I think the easy answer is that the people in this cult were stupid. But we know that really smart people have been taken in by these sorts of things in the past, so there is something far deeper at play. The easy answer is not always the correct one. I would just say that this all being so recent, with people still being trialled and sentenced this year, it's 2021 for those listening in the future, and also, do you have flying cars yet? Um, I try to take a tactful and careful approach and didn't push Kelly too much on what may or may not have happened to her personally. Her world has quite recently turned upside down, so I hope my gentle approach reflects that. 
That said, she does seem to be doing really well and is releasing her first book, Unapologetically Glorious, soon. Do follow her on Instagram on at thekellythiel to keep up to date with all of that and more. She recently featured in a documentary series about the cult, by the way, called Seduced Inside the NXIVM Cult. I couldn't get it because it's on something called Stars, but maybe you can, so give that a go. Do please subscribe to the YouTube channel, by the way, of this podcast. It's youtube.com slash andrewgold1 and chat with me there at 6pm UK time on Mondays. Listen to the bonus chat with Kelly in which things do get quite emotional on patreon.com slash andrewgold or through Apple subscriptions. Next week on the show is podcaster and very interesting man Jordan Harbinger who was kidnapped a couple of times. But now, it's Kelly Thiel. Where are you? Where Where is it for you? Where is San Francisco, maybe? No, I'm in um, Dana Point, California, which is just south of uh, Laguna Beach, California. Well, I'm going to look that up because I like to know these things. Because I did, when I was 19, so like, well, I guess that was like 12 years, 13 years ago, I did one of these, uh, I was like a camp counselor um, in Camp Sky Lake on, on Bass Lake, which is uh, just outside, um, shoot, what's the, what's the, Park called Yosemite. Yosemite. Mm-hmm. Mm, so it was just, I was there for like three months. I loved it. And then I got to Have go around fun. California, met loads of new friends and stuff. Oh, so it's Orange County. So it's like, is that LA? So so Orange County is south of LA by about 50 miles. Okay. Oh, cool. Okay. California. Did you ever watch that, that series? <laughs> Which one? Uh, the OC. The OC actually... No, I never have, to be honest. I don't watch a lot of television, um, hmm. but that's one I definitely did not watch, or The Housewives, or any of those, unfortunately, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> They're all there, I'm aren't they? <laughs> I, yeah. No, I think you're better off not watching them. I, I was like 17, and it was like, every, that's how we all know about, in the UK, we all know about Orange County yeah. because of um, that series that was on, and it had that song that started, California, here we come. Yeah, I think it kind of put us on the map. Yeah, it really did. Um, people are probably, you've probably got more people, but British tourists wanting to find out like the real, it's probably, I imagine it's lots of just nice houses and stuff, right? And beaches. Yeah, it's it's very, uh, it was developed as a, a city. So um, in some cities, you know, you're using older infrastructure. So in Orange County, it's all fairly new or fairly recent. So hmm. it's a nice place to live. The weather's wonderful most of the time. Oh, and, yeah, but don't yeah. you get too used to that? Right. I was just in, uh, I was in the UK a couple of weeks ago and the weather was really beautiful, but the day we left, it started pouring rain. So sideways <laughs> oh, as right, I got to yeah. the airport. <laughs> what were you yeah. doing in the UK? Uh, my husband has family. So we had a funeral, a wedding oh. and a birthday. So, okay. Lots of stuff. Yeah, wow. Kind of catch a, up. A, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm sorry about the sideways rain at the end, but then also it's, um, <laughs> Like I said, I think it's good because I lived for a while in a place where it was only ever spring. They call it the city of eternal spring in uh, Medellin in Colombia, Colombia. And uh, uh, it's I got after like six months, it was like waking up and just being like, oh, yeah, it's nice again today. Blue skies. OK, here we go. You know, whereas, whereas here in the UK, I wake up and it's blue skies and you're like, oh, what a day. And everyone's really nice to you. And everyone's like, hey, are you having a good day? Yeah, me too. So I don't know. I don't know if you get bored of that good weather over there. Not really. Um, no. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, tell me, what's the Dalai Lama like? And, and and under what circumstances did you have a private audience with him? 
I did. Uh, so some friends of mine were involved in an organization that was helping to build schools in Tibet. And this organization brought the Dalai Lama to uh, San Francisco to speak to the Tibetan population there, as well as open to the public. So we were able to attend that. And he, we were able to go backstage after there were eight of us uh, to go meet the Dalai Lama. And uh, he, it was really interesting when he walked in the room, there was this almost like this aura sort of around him, this light, but he reminded me of a five-year-old child, you know, the joy that a five-year-old child has. And he kind of giggled and he talked to us and he was just really wonderful. He's very human, very human, Um, but also just delightful. There's only word I can think of delightful. Oh, I bet so. Yeah, he has that sort of yeah. buoyancy. I've gone out. Of, I'm going out of mm-hmm. focus. Get back in here. Get back to the focus. Can you see that? I've gone all fuzzy. Oh, yeah. Is it back? Oh, I think I'm back. There we go. That's better. Less, whew, less fuzzy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dalai Lama. And then also, so before we get on to, um, oh, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say how it's pronounced yet. So, but before we get on to that. Tell me a little bit about the book you're writing, Unapologetically Glorious. Yes. Uh, so I've just recently written a book called Unapologetically Glorious. And it's um, it's actually a blueprint of my experiences um, throughout my life, including my experience in Nixium. And uh, it's really how I went from being a seeker, a true seeker, looking everywhere for that thing that was going to make me okay, you know, that thing that um, a lot of people are searching for, enlightenment, what have you, and how I came to find out that it's actually here inside myself, that it's, there's nothing outside myself. There's no one person with the answer. There's no one thing that has the answer. And so it's just sort of a blueprint of uh, episodes of my life that sort of brought me to that place. A pursuit of happiness. Would you classify it as a self-help book? Um not necessarily a self-help book, but more just sort of a sharing of the vulnerabilities of being human. So it's not like a step-by-step how-to book by any means. I, I'm not an expert. So it's just sort of my my experience. Hmm. It's quite hard to be human sometimes. I think expectations, yes. and I, I always like one of my favorite exp- uh, expressions, It was I think it was credited to a Roosevelt. Were there two Roosevelt's? One of the Roosevelt's, I think, uh, comparison mm-hmm. is the thief of joy. And it's that thing of just like if you're comparing your life to other people's yes. all the time, like you just can never, ever be happy. Yes. And if you think there's this thing out there uh, that's going to make you happy, whether it be a love, a marriage, a, a child, uh, a thing or a person or even an organization that's going to ha- make you happy, I think that's a big mistake. Uh, it can add to the joy of your life and to the tapestry of your life, but it's there's nothing out there that's going to do it for you. And it was really difficult for me to get that. I mean, people talk about it. It's not a new message, but it was really difficult for me to really embrace that. I had to go through a lot of struggles and a little trauma like everyone else um, to sort of get to that place to re- realize that it's all right here. Isn't it funny how there are certain things that you hear? Sometimes you hear them since you're a child and you hear mm-hmm. it and hear it. And then one day you hear it and it actually makes more. It's like, it, it's not that it didn't make sense before. It always made sense, like logically, but it really sort of comes through to you sometimes. And we push away pain a lot of the times and we push it away as if it's a bad thing. It doesn't feel good, but Sometimes you kind of have to just sit with it and you got to walk through the fire sometimes. I like that. I just had 
the recent episodes, I had the most uh, Guantanamo Bay's most tortured prisoner. So talking about pain. And yeah. then also a guy called Professor Paul Bloom, who wrote a book um, called The Sweet Spot about why it's uh, why we enjoy suffering sometimes and why mm-hmm. suffering can be good for us. Just a little bit. And I suppose I want to find out now. So now we're going to get into the name of this. And I just saw you and Eric Hunley, and he was getting the name wrong. Um, and we're, we're talking about what I was calling <laughs> NXIVM. And mm-hmm. that's not the pronunciation. What is? How do you say it? It's called Nixium. Nixium. So it is N-X-I-V-M. That V at the end then, they're using it like the old-fashioned V from like medieval times. Exactly. I suppose that gives it, they, they did that to give it some sort of credence, like it's this otherworldly thing that was always there because we spelt the U differently. Right. And if you move, I may have this wrong, but if you move the I over and you replace it with another letter and take that V and make it a U, it's the Greek I believe the Greek word for slave. Oh, no way. So indentured slave. Yes. I'm sorry. I have that wrong. I've only looked at it once, but it was, huh. it made total sense. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, what is it supposed to mean for the people who created this? We'll call it as Eric Hunley on his podcast did uh, for now organization. Like what were they trying to spell? Uh, I'm not really sure what they were trying to spell. <laughs> I think he was just trying, Keith was trying to come up with a name that was, well, if you, go by what I said, he was actually trying to sort of trick everyone and hopefully no one would figure it out. And it might have been fairly, you know, evil, but uh, I never actually looked into the name. I just assumed it was something that he was trying to do differently, you know, kind of a sim- something between a word and a symbol to represent the organization. Just like random letters. I guess it's sort of, it's so sort of half confusing and then half looks like mm-hmm. some sort of Roman or medieval thing that you just yeah. go, okay, I, I buy it. Okay, let's what let's find out about this, <laughs> this, this amazing sounding place. You know what's really interesting? Just because I hadn't heard of Nixium until like a few weeks ago. And I speak to Eric, mm-hmm. um, who's another podcaster, of course, and we, also, we speak about other people, you know, who would be good to interview and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, I'd never, because I guess in the UK, maybe they weren't as, as big. Um, and so what was really interesting was that they sort of uh, pretended to be a multi-level marketing company and were actually doing things like sex trafficking and lots of other horrible things. Usually cults right. hide that they're doing multi-level marketing, I think, at least on the surface. They're sort of, you know, they're usually something else and they secretly are doing multi-level marketing. But this one was like, on the face of it, they were so. So, yeah. Tell me, and the listeners who may not have heard of Nixium, can you tell me a little bit about them, please? Yes. Yeah, so, Nixium was a um, purported to be in the very beginning when it was sold to me as a self-help organization, a human potential organization. Um, the MLM or multi-level marketing really wasn't uh, something that I looked at because it was I wasn't involved in that part of it. It was more in the sales part of it. Um, when they were recruiting people, it was broken down that way. And I always looked at the, the, um, the, the business model as not working because it didn't really work. Afterwards, I realized that the MLM really came into the part when, when he had started DOS and all of the slaves were recruiting, each recruiting six slaves to create this diagram of right so that's where the mlm yeah. really came in it was like this sex uh, sex slave mlm thing and and so um 
I didn't really see that part of it as far as far as it being an MLM, but it was constructed underneath us an MLM, yes. But it was more of a human potential organization. So what were they pretending to be doing as an MLM selling? Because obviously they weren't saying we were Well, they were selling doing... memberships. Yeah, they were ah. selling students to buy their program. So the program was set up to help people um, reach their human potential. And that's what attracted me. And so a lot of the tools were great because they were also taken from other people like Tony Robbins and a lot of others. So it was a combination of many different uh, self-help tactics, which, which actually did some of them did help. So that was the draw. And the people that were drawn to this, like myself, were people who wanted to sort of reach a place of enlightenment, to be a better person, to help the world become a better place. That was a mission that we talked about. And that's what kept me involved and interested in this to, at, at the beginning. It's such a shame, isn't it? Because there are often these uh, organizations or cults or what, like Scientology as well, yes. where I think even if you disagree with the science, some of the stuff seems to help some people. Uh, yes. I think Tom Cruise is probably a bit far gone. Um, but I mean, mm-hmm. even Jerry Seinfeld said that he was in Scientology. He went to a couple of meetings and some of the stuff there he really liked and then they just like throw this horrible stuff your way. Like so, so what is DOS? You mentioned DOS. So DOS was a subgroup of the organization that was rec- were were a small group of women with Keith that were recruiting other women into this group. Uh, it was a secret group of women that were supposedly doing kick-ass things in the world. And I was asked to be in this group. And then they asked at one point for some collateral in order to know more about the group. All I was told, it was a group of women who were doing great things in the world. And I'd be a great asset to that, to help myself grow, to become more measurable, more accountable. And so I thought, okay, well, that, that sounds like something to be up my alley. And then when they asked for collateral, um, it was obviously a big red flag for me. And I was thinking, well, what are you talking about collateral? What kind of collateral? And and that stopped me in my tracks. And fortunately, at that point, around that time is when DOS became, became, became public. So then I knew what was going on. But up mm-hmm. until that point, I still wasn't sure because I wasn't being told everything that was going on because I hadn't given collateral. Okay. And collateral meaning money, right? Oh, it could be money. It could be nude photos. It could be what? a house deed. It could be a bank account. They asked me to... Uh, make a video that said that my business was, you know, I was lying in, in my business. I mean, some people wrote letters um, that their brother was abusing their his children or, you know, make up uh-huh. lies about their family. It was really awful. Just anything so that once you're in on the inner circle, if you wanted to report it, they could they could get you in trouble. Basically, you wouldn't want to reveal that, I wouldn't think. If if I had done something like that, I wouldn't want it revealed to my family. Um, I wouldn't mm-hmm. protect my family or protect anyone that the collateral would involve. So yes, a lot of these women. There must be stories, as you say, of like somebody's brother or whatever. I mean, did that come out? People's lives must have been ruined. Well, the collateral, interestingly enough, was put onto a hard drive. Uh, and I'm unclear as to where, and I think the FBI is unclear as to where all that collateral actually is. It could be in a Dropbox somewhere. We, we don't really know. Oh my God. That's crazy. Yeah. And then, so you found out just through the public, you weren't in DOS because you didn't, you know, the collateral was the red flag, that it was Correct. what some sort of sex slave thing. So he was basically, um, he had his inner circle of slaves. I believe there were seven. Um, it feels like a lifetime ago, so I'm starting to forget <laughs> some details. <laughs> oh um, I think there were seven slaves, six or seven in his first line. 
and they were all to recruit their own six slaves. And he was having sex with all of them, basically, I think. And then they were basically their job was to recruit. And he was actually having them branded with a cauterizing pen in their pubic area with (sighs) his initials. Now, Uh. some of the people that I know that were branded did not know they were his initials. They thought that they were uh, symbols of the, of the, um, of the seasons. They were like a Gaia, you know, something that it was. So when they found out that they were his initials, that really woke them up uh, to a certain extent. I mean, they'd already been branded. So everyone has their own story of how this happened. And many people will say that could never happen to me. And, and, you know, we don't know, you just don't know. And these are, these women are are smart women, many of them, I know many of them. And, and it, these type of things happen over a period of time when you're indoctrinated into a system um, that's manipulating you. And sometimes you don't know until it's too late. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. I think the first 
uh, mistake someone could make is to think I could never that could never happen to yes. me and I'm too smart to fall for something because that's so this is this is Keith Ranieri is that how you say his name uh, Keith Ranieri Keith Ranieri Ranieri mm-hmm. Keith Ranieri so he must I mean he must be a psychopath right uh, I I believe he's a psychopath yes uh, probably a narcissistic psychopath uh-huh. and he's currently incarcerated yes yeah he's incarcerated for 120 years He's 61 now, so he'll be 181 when he gets out. Um, and he's short. I've just seen that. Oh, I've just seen it on Wikipedia. He's five foot seven. So he's quite short. Yes. I wonder if that's got something yes. like a small... No, no. If, I mean, some people listening will be short as well. And there's, I, don't, I don't want to be against... There's nothing wrong with short people, but some, a very small percentage of short people, I found, because I'm quite tall and I've often been sort of uh, bullied by short people. They've been quite... Uh, aggressive to me I, I wonder if that sort of gave him the power but the thing is so so i know you've looked into be, uh, beyond your own experience i know you've been looking into cults and pe- the way people think um yes. a little bit mm-hmm. that way so so <laughs> i know it's not a simple question but how does a guy uh like him say you're now a sex slave thanks for the collateral and everything you're in this group mm-hmm. you're now a sex slave can you go and get me six more and for like probably perfectly normal women go, okay, yeah, I'll just go out and do that. How does that happen? Well, it happens very slowly. It doesn't happen immediately. So these women had been part of the organization for quite a few years. And one of the things that a cult, one of the big red flags of a cult is a charismatic leader. You know, someone that purports to be smarter than everyone, has some kind of special gift, can give you what you need if you know, we're looking for enlightenment. He's the one, right? So he's attracting people that he, that believe they can, he can provide something for them. And they start to believe the myth after a period of time. Now, if you believe that you're with the smartest man in the world, and he tells you to do something that might be outside of your comfort zone, you might say, okay, well, I'll try it. If he's telling me this is really going to help me. And over a period of time, the asks, the asks get bigger right? So he starts asking for bigger and bigger things. Not to mention that one of the things he was asking for is for people to go on a 500 calorie a day diet. Now imagine, you know, I'm five foot nine. um, I'm fairly slender, but I eat probably 2000 calories a day. Right. Yeah. I don't know calories at all. I, I, I should do. So that's 500 is very, very low then, is it? Very, very low. So 500 calories a day is barely enough to keep your body sort of just functioning and not even functioning at optimum, just kind of staying alive. So these, so when that happens, all of the energy goes to staying alive, not thinking. And so these women are starting to do things because they're delirious. They haven't eaten. I mean, there's one story that someone told me that um, they were in this group and they had to sell their computer because they were um, they had they needed money so badly. So they met someone at a coffee shop during one of the DOS meetings, ran to a coffee shop and um, were selling their computer. And the person who bought it offered them a piece of cake. And they were like, okay, well, no one's looking. So they ate it and it gave them enough sugar. This is what she told me. It gave them enough sugar into their system and their brain to them for them actually realize for the first time, oh my God, what am I doing? Wow. So that he used those type of tools to get people under his control. I mean, this, these are not new ways of doing things. Um, and so that's how he was able to manipulate a lot of these women into doing things that really went against themselves and agreed to be branded and uh, believing that they were doing something that was 
powerful and was going to make them stronger and better people. Sex with him. Yeah. Where was that going going on? Did he have like a place? You know, I'm thinking of like the Scientology has its churches, you know, and there's the boats and stuff. Is there a place? Well, there was a, a, a center there where everyone took the classes. And then he had a home in Knott's Woods, which was, I think, um, like half an hour from the center. And many of the people that were close to him, many of the women that were close to him also had homes in walking distance in that area. So Knott's Woods was full of members from Nixium. So that's, I think, where a lot of this went down. Imagine being his neighbor. You'd probably, you'd be like, what is going on in that place? Oh, yeah. I can't imagine. Huh. So what is Janess? That's another thing, isn't it? Oh, Janess. Uh, so Janess was a, uh, a series of uh, modules or a series of classes that were specifically for women and um, to teach women what it's like to be a woman versus what it's like to be a man, how we can work together as male and female. But in going in, again, there was some useful information. But as she went through the series, which I did, it started to become very misogynistic. It started to become very um, making women taking power away from women, making them more subservient, telling them that they are princesses that are always dependent on men, that we live in bubbles. I mean, there was a whole narrative that went with keeping women um, very uh, less powerful that helped that, that really was um, teaching women to be subservient basically at the end of the day. Here's, here's the weird thing. Cause it's clearly a misogynist group. Um, mm-hmm. And I think of the eight or so people who were prosecuted and went to prison, yes. I th- mm-hmm. they were, apart from him, they were all women. Are these women, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's a Nancy Saltzman and Lauren Saltzman mm-hmm. and, and Claire Bronfman. Uh, are these, uh, are they women who were sort of hypnotized by him? Are they victims? And if so, is it not right that, it, that they went to prison? Well. And that's a, such a that's such a good question, and believe me, I thought about it so much. I know all these women, and um, it's very difficult to figure out where that line is between victim and perpetrator. Right? They yeah. they broke the law. They did bad things. Were they victims of Keith? Yes, I believe to some extent, and different different percentages all were victims of him, um, but they also did bad things. So. Thank goodness I wasn't the judge in this case to decide who was, um, you know, what kind of sentence to give everyone. But I do believe that the judge in this case was very human and he was really looking for who was, who could be rehabilitated, who was making the effort to rehabilitate themselves. And I think he did a, I think personally, he did a really great job deciding the sentences. Were they all fairly short apart from um, Keith Ranera? I think so. I think Claire Bronfman had seven years. I think Lauren Salzman got probation. Um, she testified and was very um, instrumental in getting seeing Keith into jail. Um, and um, everybody, you know, was two years. I think Nancy got three and a half. Um, so they were fairly reasonable. I think they're reasonable. I mean, I would never want to go to prison. I don't think anyone would, would want to. But given the circumstances and what happened, I think it was it was pretty fair. Yeah, and to, I think prison doesn't sound too much worse than being in his inner circle. So you know, 
Well, I think it would give someone time to actually evaluate and think and and be out of that um, indoctrination and be able to start putting your life back together and give you an opportunity to, you know, be a little more educated and think about what you want to do next. Where was this then, most of it? Uh, In um, Albany, New York. And Albany is the uh, capital of New York State. Oh, right. Okay, so so are you from around there and now you're in California? No, I've always been in California. And so oh. I would fly back and forth to Albany to, to teach oh. and to coach rather and to um, it was being part of the organization that way. Right. So, okay, so when you, you were there, so you were coaching, so you were like, you mm-hmm. got to like a higher level and, and stuff. Yes. So is it is it like people are living, they're, again, they're not based like in the and forgive me for not knowing anything about this because I wanted to watch no? the documentary and I couldn't get hold of it. I couldn't get it working in the UK. I think it's maybe only in oh the stars, US. yeah, yeah. Ugh, yeah, you got to have a whole thing. I thought it was going to work with Amazon Prime, and then it was a whole thing. Um, so I couldn't, and I thought, you know what? I'll just ask Kelly when she comes on. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, so so was it? Were, were people living in a certain place? Or was it like everyone goes home at the end of the day, they go out with their families and stuff, and then the next day they come for a class or something? So most of the um, students were one-time students. Like they would go through the 16-day course and go on with their life. And then people like me who became a coach became part of this community. And most of the community was in Albany, New York. And then there was also a center in Los Angeles. And so um, I stayed on the West Coast and... Um, I'd say, you know, 80% of the people were living in Albany and also in Mexico. So there was a huge um, membership in Mexico as well. And I would just fly back and forth for the coach summit or fly back and forth for intensives that I was helping to coach. So a little bi-coastal there for a while. And it had like some big people involved. There was like the daughter of the former Mexican president and it was Richard Branson apparently, although I think he denies that, but he went to a class apparently, allegedly. Yeah, they had a... On his island in Fiji, they had a, uh, they had they all the group got together. This is before I, I came on board, but they definitely, you know, and and I don't know if Richard Bransman knew Keith intimately or m- maybe just I don't know exactly what happened there. But I think a lot of people want to distance themselves from something like this. It's a natural thing, sure, to say. Huh? <laughs> no, that wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, and well, he's not going to sue us because what can he get from us, Richard Branson? It was a drop in the ocean for him. Yeah, and and I think not many people want to come forward, like I said, to talk about these things. It's fairly difficult. Mm. It's difficult for me, uh, for anyone to talk about these things because it's embarrassing, right? I mean, it, there's a part of it that's like, oh my gosh, I was in a, in a cult and I had to come to terms with that. And there's a lot of judgment around it. A lot of people have a lot to say about it. And Have you had criticism from people? Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think when I first, when I first got out, while I was still processing what had happened to me, uh, you know, there was a huge amount of embarrassment. I didn't want anyone to know I was, uh, I wanted to crawl into a hole and die basically. And, uh, so Cecilia Peck, uh, who's a director, she makes documentaries with women's voices. Uh, she managed to find me and we went out to lunch and uh, she really encouraged me to come forward with my voice to talk about what happened. And um, so it was, that was a really great step for me and it's very helpful. 
that's sort of like owning it and then you don't have to be as embarrassed or afraid of it, right? Yeah. Once you own your story, that's what my book's about. Uh, it's uh, unapologetically glorious, owning your story without shame or blame. It's um, owning your story is the, the very first step to processing and healing anything in your life. Because once you own it, it's yours. And, you know, it's a, it's a stepping stone to being able to be subjective. I mean, excuse me, to being objective about what happened to you. And so once you can be objective, then you can really see what happened and learn from it and move forward from it. So that was a huge step for me. Otherwise, people are going to be like whispering to each other, like, oh, do you know about Kelly, what she did? And then this way, it's like, you're just like, well, hey, I've written a book about it. I know. Who cares? Yeah. 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 What yeah. have you done? How many books have you written? That's what you could say. <laughs> but you know, yeah. yeah, it's, it is, it's, you know, I was saying before, we were saying before that this is a kind of thing, look, anyone could fall for this or something different, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean it's not embarrassing. There's plenty of stuff that we have all done that are embarrassing, but luckily not everyone knows about it. And, and I guess in this right. case, people knew about it. Right, exactly. Well, tell me about the moment then that you realized. So how long had you been in this organ? Well, Eric was calling it organization, but it is a cult, isn't it? It's a cult. Well, right? it's well, it's funny because people call it cult-ish. Um, it doesn't have all of the, like if you look at like Charles Manson, the dead chickens and the murders and all yeah. of that, you know, you think of that as being a cult. And it now that the conversation around cults is so much bigger, like, we're having conversations about organizations that are cults, but cults can run a gamut from cult-ish all the way through full-on, um, you know, like like I said, Charles Manson. Manson. So, mm. so I think this organization—I don't want to say it wasn't a cult; it, it it was a cult, but it was more of an organization that had was a cult. If that makes sense. Yeah, an it organization was like it wasn't set out in- to be. Yes, it wasn't set out to be a cult. It wasn't like a, a, a well-known cult. Oh, nobody joins a cult. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, "Oh, I think I'll join a cult." <laughs> um, so, yes, it was definitely you could call it an organization a cult. Uh, they had so many organizations have cultish behavior. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm sure. And so, tell but tell me about the the moment. I suppose maybe it was around the moment that the DOS stuff became public. Tell me yeah. the moment when you realized like, oh God, what have I, what have I joined? What is this thing? Yeah. So I had been, um, they'd been asking for collateral and I was putting it off and I was avoiding the phone calls at this point. And a friend called me from Canada and she said, have you seen the news? I said, what are you talking about? Have you seen, have you seen what's going on? And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. She said, um, Keith Raniere has, has sex slaves and he started this organization and he's branding women. And I had not heard anything about this at this point. And so she said, I'm going to send you a link to the Frank report, but you cannot let anyone know that I've sent it to you. I said, why? And she said, because they'll come after me. And I'm like, oh. okay. So I clicked on the link. I looked at it and I'm reading it. And I'm thinking, oh, this is baloney. This isn't true. This is all bullshit. And then I got to the word collateral. And it, that's when it clicked for me. It literally clicked because that word, I, they've been asking me for that. I'm like, oh my God. And the weird thing, and I still get chills on this, but in that moment, I, had, I was sitting, sitting down and from my right came a wave of knowingness and it went right through my body. And what it told me, the thought I had was Keith is evil. Now, that went right through my body. I was like, 
oh my gosh, I can't think like that. Keith's not evil. What are you, what are you talking? You know, it was sort of like this whole thing about one moment you have this knowingness and another you're, you're questioning that knowingness. So over a period of time, very short period of time, I started doing more research, started talking to a few people. No one really wanted to talk about it. And I started kind of putting the pieces together a little bit for myself and realizing that that feeling I had was real. Somewhere back here, Keith's responsible. Now, at this point, nobody knew Keith was really behind all this. Everybody thought that these girls, women, had started this or this part of the organization themselves. And so that in that moment is when I knew. Now I didn't get out right away. I didn't like jump out immediately because I wanted, I didn't really believe it a hundred percent. So I had to do some calling and asking and, and soul searching. And that's when my journey getting out started. Okay. So you sort of knew, but you needed proof. Like, cause it's quite a big thing. If there's someone you sort of love at that point and respect mm-hmm. to suddenly be like, he's evil. You need, you need like to find yeah. out for your own, your own eyes. Right. Exactly. It'd be like someone telling you, not that Keith was my best friend, but someone telling you that your best friend just murdered somebody. You're like, what? what that can't be you know so that's that's kind of the feeling that it was it took me a little while what does it feel like to um look up to somebody with such reverence to to look up to this man uh cuz i suppose maybe because i'm a man who maybe i'm competitive i don't know i feel like if there's some guy in charge i'm already skeptical because i'm like hey, who do you think you are bozo you know so yeah. what does it feel like to see someone like that you don't you don't know him personally or i believe you met him right what's that mm-hmm. feeling of like is, is it godlike well it's interesting because he was pre- presented to me as if, if he were godlike. That was the narrative that was constantly being told to me. And then when I did meet him, I was quite disappointed uh, because I, you know, I wanted to put someone on a pedestal. I wanted someone to solve my problems, to make me okay, to have the answer, all of this, right? So when I met him, I was like, I met him at um, volleyball. And he came over and he gave me a hug. He said, I know all about you. I know, you know, you're working up the Stripe Path, which was the organization's uh, way for a coach to, to move, get promoted. And I thought that's really odd that he would, A, know about me. And then he seemed to know more about me than I felt comfortable with. And the other thing that, was a, that I felt uncomfortable with was the people who wanted me to meet him practically drug me to meet him. Even after I said, I'm really not interested in meeting him. It's not that big of a deal. They said, oh, it is a big deal. Not that many people get to meet him, et cetera, et cetera. So they kept building it up. And when I did finally meet him, I was very disappointed on okay. a, many levels. Was he? Did he play volleyball then? He was a big volleyball player. And the whole thing was 10 o'clock volleyball was when everyone would go to be with Keith, to be able to talk to Keith, to be oh. around Keith, to rub bubbles with Keith. And I, you know, I want, I'd like to go to bed at like nine o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stay up at 10 o'clock to go to volleyball. 10 o'clock so. volleyball. So that's a really weird, I didn't expect that at all. I didn't expect mm-hmm. that this would go from like sex trafficking and a lot of crimes to sort of, he really likes volleyball. It's just an odd sport. Yeah. I don't know why that is. It's like badminton. If you'd said badminton as well, I'd have been really surprised with that <laughs> just he likes that and and he said he was asking if you like hugs wasn't he he asked me he said are you a hugger and at first i didn't under really understand the question like what do you mean and then i and then i realized and i said i guess and then he just gave me this big Ugh. hug and i i generally don't hug people that i haven't met yet 
that's not what I do. Um, so I found that really odd, very odd and uncomfortable. I can see why he did that thing of wanting you to know that he knew about you. Because you can imagine if this wasn't a cultish thing, like if imagine yes. you're working somewhere, like you're working at Apple and then Steve Jobs, were he alive, comes down and he says, hey, I know what I know about you. You're the, you're right. doing this great work for us. You'd be thrilled. You're like, oh my God, Steve. And it was, I guess it's something that he could have looked it up two minutes before. Like, who am I meeting now? Oh yeah, okay. Uh, oh yeah. But it makes you feel a million dollars. So right. that's probably why he did that, right? Well, I think part of the whole organization, and when you look at cults, one of the big uh, legs is it's called love bombing. And love bombing is all about making the person who's new into an organization, making them the center of attention and surrounding them and giving them compliments and, you know, uh, attention. And I don't know who doesn't like attention. So yeah, it, that part felt good for sure. Um, the love bombing from everyone in the community felt wonderful. And him knowing about me felt weird, but also was like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. So I'm there was waves. both sides yeah. to that. Yeah, there's like, oh, I'm being seen. And, and you know, everybody wants to be seen on some level, I suppose. I mean, yeah. Man, it's such a complicated thing. How would you like to try some incredible top quality wines for free? I'd like to introduce you listeners to my new favorite wine club, Wine 52, a monthly wine discovery club. They are so sure that you'll love their wines that you can grab your first case completely free. All you need to do is go to www.wine52.com slash Andrew, my name, and cover the postage costs of £5.95, that is, and you'll get three bottles delivered right to your door. Wine 52 is a wine club with a difference. Instead of stocking thousands of wines from hundreds of producers, Wine 52 only selects the very best of the best. Their expert wine tasters search out the most exciting wine regions and top undiscovered winemakers in the world and bring them to your door. How does it work? I hear you say. Each month they send their members three wines which you can customise to your taste by choosing from a case of white, red or a mixture. Also included is their magazine Glug which brings you the story of the producers and insight about wine and travel from each region. After your free case, you'll be part of the monthly wine club. No minimum commitment. You can try it, see what you think. If it's not for you, pause or cancel at any time. But just remember that's www.wine52.com slash Andrew. That's W-I-N-E, obviously, 52.com slash Andrew, my name, to claim your case today. As you found out that it wasn't real and there was all this stuff going on was that the did you feel really low um how what about your family had you gotten them involved at all so my my the older children uh, my adult children um did some classes they would just did uh like five or six days of classes um, my husband did a few days of classes um but you know they went on with their lives i was looking for purpose i was looking for enlightenment. So I got involved, very involved in the community. And so I took lots of classes and, and, and coached as well. And when I did get out, there was a huge mourning period for me um, around the loss of the community. Imagine you have all of these people that you're very close with now, not just close with, but you've shared a lot of deep, intimate feelings. You've been very vulnerable with them. Um, they're your friends, people you count on. And then someone comes up and blows up the community. Like it comes along, your whole village is just shattered. It's in pieces. 
there was a, a lot of sadness around that and losing people that are still in the group. They still believe um, and having no contact with them. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a loss, definitely a loss. Yeah, and I, I think even once uh, Keith was in prison, he like fifty or sixty people used to come to the prison and dance outside. Yes. Yeah, there's still people that I still care about on a on a human level um, that are still very involved, but I cannot have contact with them. I mean, of course, if they came to me and said, "Kelly, I I, I understand now. I need to get. I need help." Of course, I would be there to help them move on with their life away from this. But I can't have conversations with them because of, of what has happened. Hmm. Did, was your husband a, a beacon of support in the, in the bad times? Yes, very much. Uh, he was very upset when he found out what was going on, obviously extraordinarily upset. But he was very, um, very supportive and very helpful in me getting therapy. Um, he's very supportive, actually, of the documentary as well, um, even though it was going to expose me and him on some level, obviously uh, he was very supportive because he really believed it was important to get women's voices out into the world around this type of abuse. When you say expose, because I didn't get to watch the documentary in what sense were you, were you exposed? Do you feel? So I really, well, the vulnerability of just, okay, being in on TV in a documentary where people are seeing my face, hearing my story. Um, you know, I, I, you know, people follow me on Instagram. It's not always wonderful. Um, I do get comments, um, but mostly people are, are good about it. But um, the exposure is just like, I could have swept this under the carpet and gone on with my life and pretended it never happened or, you know, told people, oh, you know, never really told my side of the story in terms of, these things, these organizations need to be stopped. You know, there needs to be regulation somehow on these types of organizations that are abusing people and sex trafficking and everything else. And so this exposure was just coming out and having my face of like what I'm doing right now. It's not, it's not the easiest thing for me. Um, I get nervous. I feel vulnerable, vulnerable, you know, but, um, well, you speak yeah, very you're eloquently. Great. You're great. I mean, you're very kind, and it's, it's a lovely interview. Oh, thank you. I should be mean now. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I, no, no. Please. <laughs> no, no. I, you know, I can't. I can't do it. I even. I've, it's. It's that thing. Sometimes people do message and say, like, "Hey, you should be a bit harder on your guests." And I just think, like, well, for whose benefit? really like for right. what is that yeah. the listeners can make up their own minds and stuff and if they've got questions they've got thoughts they can not that i suggest they do but they can get in touch with you you know nicely right. and politely um yeah it's a it's a very uh intimate thing in a sense when you invite somebody to to have this space um with somebody i've mm -hmm. never met is going to come and tell their life story to me the good and the bad and i'm very privileged that they get to talk to me so i'm not going to sit here criticizing everyone it would be it would be mad but it, it it's it's uh it's not it's no it's fantastic that you that you tell your story and i think you're exactly right like it, so that other people can hear and what, one of the main reasons many of us don't get involved in cults apart from that we like to think of ourselves as incredibly intelligent and nothing we would never do anything <laughs> yeah. stupid but one of the reasons is like well i've seen loads and loads of things about cults you know i've seen people talking about their experiences in them mm -hmm. if i'd never ever seen something like that and then somebody came along and said you know this guy he's brilliant and maybe i would again i still feel like that sort of uh, testosterone fueled 
part of the back of my head would be like, I don't trust this guy. But if he was, if he was mm-hmm. maybe um, not a guy, maybe a woman, maybe I'd be like, okay, let's hear what she has to say. Let's see. So mm-hmm. there were more women in the in the cult, weren't there? I think, or was it, is that right? Um, well, there was definitely all women in DOS. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it was uh, maybe slightly more women. Yeah, I'd say you know, like maybe. women would be 60%-ish. I think it was more attractive to women on some level because women generally, not always, but generally seem to be the ones that are searching for to be maybe better people. They're searching for their human potential. I mean, a lot of men do as well. So I think it really catered somewhat to women um, because you have to be very vulnerable. You have to really want to expose yourself in, in these group settings of looking at what are your deepest, darkest secrets and how can we help you move through the trauma or what have you. That's generally sometimes women. It's it's so, so sad, whether, you know, women or, or men or anyone, just that it's a search for purpose, I suppose. I guess it's something we all mm-hmm. struggle with and we all feel in different ways. Um, what does one do with that? Is that what you're writing about? Do, do we just have to, do we have to accept that, Maybe there is no purpose and we're just okay as we are. Well, one of the things that I, I write about is, you know, glorious, right? My, my grandmother always told me that I was glorious. I didn't really know what it meant. And I came to sort of find out that glorious is already in us. We're born with it. And through our lifetime of our belief system, what people tell us, what we choose to believe, um, we start to forget that we have that inside of us. And so searching for purpose, sometimes I think might get a little bit confused with that inner light, that being okay, in the sense that we're looking for something outside of ourselves to be okay. And for me now, understanding what that light is, is that I'm okay on my journey where I am right now in this moment talking to you, I'm okay, right? I'm still searching. I'm not searching so much as I'm moving forward in my goals. I have goals and I I do have a purpose. And so I'm moving toward that and I'm not always okay, right? I don't always feel great, but I know I'm okay. Like I, I know right now in this moment, I'm okay on my journey and that it's a struggle. Life's a struggle. It's an up and down. There's bad days and good days, but I'm okay with where I am right now. And I think that for me is like the purpose part of it. It's like, my purpose is to be a kind person and a good person in the world. And I have goals of things I want to do. So I guess, what would you say? Is that is that what you would say to somebody like the younger you or anyone now? I mean, mm-hmm. right now, somewhere in the world, somebody is inadvertently signing up to be in a cult. And if you could talk to yes. them, is that what you would sort of, that's what you'd tell them, I suppose? I would be telling them that, you know, you know, check it out. Like you can check out what's going on. I don't want to tell you not to do something. But definitely understand that this is a tool possibly to help you as people have tools. Take those tools and put them through your filter, knowing that the answers are actually in here, but that one particular tool or book or whatever somebody might say if you run it through the filter might be helpful or it might not be. And so it's to really rely on that intuition, that knowingness that we all we all have that. We all kind of know. And so to listen to that and to not follow any one person or any one thing 100% because A, they're not the answer and B, that is the best way to give away your power. 
to give it to someone else or something else. You know what it is? I guess there's like prey and predators in a, in a sense. And maybe yes. most of us are susceptible to being prey. Well, we, we are susceptible. To, and then there are some predators. And they're probably only 1% yes. of the world, right? But I'm sure that Keith fella was part of this part of that. And because we're all not like that, most of us, it's very hard for us to mm-hmm. empathize with those guys. It's hard to imagine wanting to take advantage of people to that extent. Right, because you're not like that. You're not like that. I'm not like that. So it's very difficult to imagine that someone would be like that until you come across it. And that's what happened to me. I didn't really think that he was evil because I don't think that way. I wasn't thinking he was capable of these types of things. And then when I found out, then I started to realize, yeah, there are people out there that are capable of this for sure. For sure. But it's hard to imagine because if you don't think that way, it's difficult to think that someone could do that. Going back to the cult, we've got a few a few minutes, um, and I should have asked this earlier, but I just forgot. Um, well, I didn't. I just didn't think of it. The sex trafficking. What what yes. does trafficking mean in that sense? What, what's actually happening there? So, in my from what I know about this particular case, the sex trafficking had to do with the coercion of one uh, one of the particular women that was had sex with Keith or someone else with Keith around and wasn't, um, she was being coerced so that she was, there was no money transfer or anything like that. People usually think trafficking and it does have to do with transfer of money. There was no transfer of money here. It was more around the coercive part of it. And um, I believe she was actually, I don't know if being moved from one place to another, cause she was from a different state. I don't know if that played into it or not. I'm not super clear on the exact reason they considered it sex trafficking. Okay. Yeah, it's just it's just Sorry about that. Yeah, I'm not no. on it. You don't need to know. You're not a lawyer, are you? I am. Uh, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, you're not a lawyer. So, I mean I mean it's yeah, it's just that the word it conjures up in my head some sort of like movie mm-hmm. about Eastern European a van going somewhere, Do you yes. know what I mean? It's not it, right. it, it's not how I thought of that, but I guess it's just a legal term. And I think there's different um, levels of sex trafficking and somehow this, this fit into it. Um, and uh, there were other counts too. There were like seven counts altogether besides sex trafficking, oh, but they were racketeering and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. What does racketeering mean? Racketeering, I believe is the, when you um, acquire a business through illegal activity. Illegal activity, but like money laundering, uh, things like that are included in uh, dealing with visas, credit cards, uh, things like that, that are just illegal doings. Man, horrible. Well, I'm glad that you are out and away from this place and helping others to avoid such places as well. Um, And thank you for giving me such a beautiful interview. Oh, thank you. This is really great. Thank you very much. I'm just with my friends Sabrina and Kane on the edge. On the edge with Andrew Gold. We're just drinking some. Region. Where's it from? Porato wine from Sicily. And do you know anything about the soil? I don't know about the soil, yeah, Sabrina. But Sabrina, are you enjoying it? What do you think of it? Is it full-bodied? I've heard it's full-bodied. Definitely full-bodied to me. Definitely take, have a sense so of berries to it. It's absolutely delicious. It almost reminds me of a winter crumble. Yeah, with some cinnamon on it. Get some on. You're on the edge.
<laughs> yes, you're on the edge. You go? On the edge, so you can see they're really enjoying the wine. Grab yourself a bottle of wine. That's wine Sit 52. Yes. Put on my latest episode, run up to Patreon. You're on the edge with Andrew Gold. Yes, and that's wine52.com slash Andrew. And don't worry, it's a screw top. <laughs> That was absolutely riveting and elucidating. So thank you, Kelly Thiel. Remember to find her on Instagram on at the Kelly Thiel and to watch the seduced documentary series to find out more. I'm glad to see that Kelly is on the path to recovery and doing well with her book Unapologetically Glorious out soon. Here our emotional chat. There are some tears. I won't say from who. Mm on patreon.com slash andrewgold or by joining the bonus tier on Apple or YouTube. No new patrons this week and the new Apple people, I can't see your names, but I know you're there and I'm very grateful for your support. On YouTube, Saud Al-Said just signed up. He's also a top tier patron, so thank you so much, Saud. It was great chatting with you in the monthly Zoom patron call. Saud seems like a very, very nice man. Thank you very much to today's sponsors, Wine52. Please make sure to sign up uh, on wine52.com slash Andrew to get your free case of wine and all of that. I know you're probably going to want that in the festive season coming up. Please keep on reviewing on Apple and CastBox and just get in touch to say hello whenever. It's always nice to hear from listeners. Loads of you tell me that you had wanted to say hi for ages but were too shy or something. Come and say hello. It's really nice to know that you're listening and to have a little chat and to know you know, to know my listeners a little better. Next week is podcaster Jordan Harbinger. So I'll see you then. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.